Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Providence Journal's College Basketball Podcast. This is Bill Koch, sports writer for the Journal, in our downtown Providence studios. Uh, I am joined for this edition by my co-conspirator from ABC6 and a weekend host on WEI here in Providence, Nick Coit, ladies and gentlemen. Coity, how we living? Hello, Bill. Happy New Year. I, I, well, I guess we can stop saying that because we're no, past like... We could still do yeah, that. Okay. Happy New Year. Hope you're off to a great start in 2021. Thank as you. good as you can be. Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I sort of coined the phrase last year that I was 2020 good. You're yeah. not completely good, but good enough. Right. Um, I'm hoping not to go too far into this year by saying I'm 2021 good. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we do see some some bright spots coming with, with some vaccines getting out. And, and obviously, you know, I know of a few people personally who have had their second dose now of the vaccine. And uh, I can imagine what sort of peace of mind that gives them. Yeah. And, and we can only hope that, you know, you and I reach that point uh, shortly and, and in an efficient manner. Uh, and that we are back in full stadiums and full gyms, you know, sooner rather than later. Light at the end of the tunnel. At some point, we're all we're all looking forward to it for sure. So it, yeah, it is it is good to hear that that science is coming through. And you know, as as I've mentioned on the pod before, uh, you know, my my sister is around it uh, every day with her job. So um, you know, good to hear. Uh, you know, the healthcare workers and people on the front lines are. Uh, are starting to, again, see the light at the end of the tunnel here. Uh, we got some good news this week. Uh, the Ryan Center is going to start allowing media personnel at URI Games. <laughs> uh, they, they will be the first program in the state to do that. Uh, we, we hope that eventually maybe Providence and, and Bryant will get on board. Um, you know, but we are thankful that uh, we'll be able to see the Rams live and, and in person. It's going to be a nice change. You and I saw them at Mohegan, and that was about it. Um, so, yeah, it'll be nice to see them on their home floor floor at a safe distance which is good we'll be in the upper tier the upper bowl of the arena um but just to be in the building to see it live and in person there's there's nothing like seeing it live uh i feel bill that i i just i get more hey watching it on tv is great but when you're there you pick up on little things in the arena little reactions little things after a shot during a timeout those things that you just don't see on tv so I'm very much looking forward to it. it it'll be a, another step toward normalcy. You're, you're right. For people who do our jobs, it's, it's context that we need. Mm-hmm. And it's the little moments on a bench, uh, little interactions between teammates, uh, something maybe as simple as the trainer giving an extra look to somebody's ankle or, or foot. You sort of get an idea that that player might not be 100% or might be playing through something, and it gives you more of a direction for any story that you would like to tell. Um, you know, And that's that's only gained through personal access and and we will have that soon Uh, and very much look forward to that me too uh the rams have left me a bit salty uh as have the friars quite so i i think (laughs) we should start with our ray of sunshine in the state and that's bryant positivity any objections positivity let's start there let's do it that's good um you know because (laughs) i i wouldn't have cared what you thought otherwise i would have gone with it uh because i am that upset billy was texting me before the pod full disclosure last night and said i we gotta get on this thing i'm like all right well this is gonna be fun something to talk about but yeah let's start with the positive the the brian bulldogs just continuing to roll i'll tell you man um i i looked it up again this morning because early on in the season you play a few games and you know they score a lot of points and you look at national average and you say oh they're in the top this they're in the top 10 top five whatever yeah now we have enough of a sample size in the season, Bill, where we say, okay, now I'm looking at these rankings. Mm. There's no fluke, okay? If you're scoring or doing what you're doing, right. then it, it means something, and you really deserve to be there. So I looked at the, the top uh, teams scoring points per game nationally mm. before I came in today. Sure. And on that list, number one, you could probably guess, Gonzaga, you know that's that's pretty you know pretty obvious. Yeah, they, they, they're just good at everything. They are incredibly skilled. For for people who haven't had a chance to watch Gonzaga, that's forty minutes of basketball pleasure. Cool. It, it really is. They are so skilled in the offensive end. That, what a program! At some point, they got a breakthrough for a national championship. I think they're the best team I've seen this year. Yeah. I, I would imagine that that this might be their best chance it, to do it. It could be. Uh, number two is the Citadel. They're up there. They've been running gun for a long time. The Citadel is is often Citadel and VMI for whatever reason are, are generally at or near the top of the charts. There, I have not had a chance to watch them, so at some point I'll take a peek. Number three is Iowa. They're up there. Luca Garza. 
And then number four in the nation, points per game, 91.4 points per game, your Bryant University Bulldogs. How about that? Wow. Right. That tells you everything. I mean, they I, we called it the, the Bulldog Blitz on the last time I was on the podcast. That's and, right. and it really, that's, that's what they do to you. And it can happen early in a game. It can happen early in a half. I mean, we saw it in the second half. I think it was that first game against Central. Oh, no, it was the second game against Central Connecticut last week where, yep. you know, it was fairly back and forth even. You know, it was second day of the back-to-back. You know, the energy wasn't as high as the first day, but they come out in that second half, and boom, they're running a gun it again, and, and there they are. So uh, it, it just speaks to how quick that this team plays, how offensively potent they can be, um, and they are fun. If you haven't had a chance to watch them, I don't know what you're waiting for. You should watch them because Peter Kiss and Chris Childs and Michael Green and Hall Elishas and all these guys, it's a good squad they got there in Smithfield. It really is. Yeah, Bryant uh, is on its longest winning streak in eight years. They've won six in a row after the sweep of Central Connecticut last week. Uh, a 93-68 blowout in the first game. A 76-64 win in the second game. Uh, Coity, you mentioned it. The, the offensive firepower they have, shooting 40.2% from three-point range. That's top 15 in the nation. Wow. Um, you know, you get Chris Childs out there shooting 47% on his own. That's in the top 85 in the nation. Um, and Bryant is now able to do it in sort of different ways. Um, you know, they grinded past Wagner. They grinded past Central Connecticut. They really only needed that one run in each game to, to build separation. And then they were able to take care of the lead. They have learned their lessons from the loss at Syracuse and the loss at St. Francis, Brooklyn. I take that as very encouraging. Um, they go to St. Francis, PA for a two-game series uh, starting Thursday and Friday. Uh, they're going to see our old friend Miles McQuiggan out there, the <laughs> former SID at Bryant and Westerly native who, who is now living in western Pennsylvania and working for the Red Flash. Uh, we wish Miles the best. Uh, and I know I saw him, uh, saw a Twitter post from Miles, uh, settled in, watching the URI Rams last night and enjoying a Whalers, uh, which is compliments nice. of the Bryant Travel Party, oh. who brought him Whalers from his home Ocean State. Well, that's very nice. That's great. So uh, a class move by the Bulldogs there. And I also warned him that uh, Coach Jared Grasso, in speaking with the media this week, said that he may be bringing some sage to burn, like Kyrie Irving did against the Celtics, right. uh, just to get some of the evil spirits away uh, from, the, from that gym in Loretto, PA, because... Uh, he said he has not won there uh, since he was a junior uh, player at Quinnipiac, which it's a long time. Apparently, this place has not been kind to to him as of as of late. And Brian also hasn't won there in in several years. I, I think I think Jared. That win by Jared, I think it was 2000 or 2001, wow. he said, when he was at Quinnipiac. So you're looking at two decades. <laughs> um, St. Francis PA has been a team that you know, they've been at or near the top of the league. They eliminated Bryant from the conference tournament last year in the quarterfinals. Um, you know, Generally have talented players. This year they opened up upsetting Pittsburgh in their first game. Uh, they've lost six in a row since. You, you wonder you know, what sort of resistance they're going to be able to muster against the Bryant team, Coyte, that, uh, I mean, really... I, I think you'll agree with me. We only see this going one way, and, and that's at or near the top of the NEC for the rest of the season. Uh, you know, barring multiple injuries, you would think that, that this team is going to be able to keep on this trajectory. And, and I, think, I think we hit on something this week when we met with Jared. We also met with Peter Kiss uh, mm -hmm. via Zoom. And Peter Kiss said the quiet part out loud. And I, I sort of want to get into this. Uh, Peter Kiss you know, held court with us for about seven or eight minutes. And part of his remarks to the media when asked, you know, sort of, how are you guys doing this? And how have you been able to, to transform into this? My fault. He said, My fault. <laughs> he said, in part, everybody on the team probably shouldn't be at Bryant, to be completely honest. From the players to the walk-ons, everybody is ultra-talented. Now, if you take that statement in a vacuum without context, you'd say, wow, what a cocky SOB this guy is. <laughs> I mean, really, he's got quite a high opinion of himself. Mm -hmm. But context is key. And if you look at the fact that Peter Kiss is a transfer from Rutgers, he's a Power 5 recruit uh, after leaving Quinnipiac initially, 
if you think about how Michael Green and Charles Pride and Hall Elijahs might fit on other rosters, if you look at someone like Chris Childs, who is a junior college All-American, whose maybe only sin in recruiting is that he's a 6'1 shooting guard and not a 6'5 shooting guard, you look at the pieces that Jared Grasso has put together, you look at how he has recruited this team to his style, you look at the attitude of the players that he's brought in, the confidence that they have. Peter Kiss's point is well taken, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And and it's important to, I know, like I said, it was my fault because I asked the question. <laughs> but I think that's a perfect way of saying it, Bill. It's the quiet part out loud. But it speaks to, that's what a, a, a successful program takes is guys that, you know, sometimes guys land in spots of programs where, I mean, Peter Kiss was at Rutgers. Right. You know, he was in a larger conference. Uh, you know, Chris Childs has been around. Mel Eggleston, unfortunately, got hurt this year. But that's a guy that, you know, was sort of uh, in that mold. And I, I think... Started his career at Wake Forest. There you go. I mean, it's they were at bigger programs. But that is... I think it speaks to the success of putting this team together by Jared Grosso and his staff. They're taking guys that were at bigger programs, and they're putting them with guys that they recruited to play at Bryant, who yes. it turns out you know, got, got recruited by, by bigger schools, but it turns out you know, they are as talented and could be talented enough to play in, in bigger programs. Somebody like a Michael Green, I mean, he, he is... Gosh, he's a great kid to, to build your program around because he just he does a lot of the things well. Um, and you can tell that Jared brought him in to be a guy that, okay, you're going to be my guy at this program. Right. You know, you're going to be my you know, face. You're going to be my guy that I say when I think of Bryant basketball, I think of Michael Green. And you mix that with some of the talented guys that you've brought in. And all of a sudden, you've got something. And and Bill and I were talking before the podcast about, you know, some of the guys you think back to the URI teams, you were just mentioning it, from a few years back. A guy like a Jared Terrell, who was getting recruited by uh, other schools, bigger level schools. Uh, was Providence was in on him too, correct? Providence, BC. He was initially committed to Oklahoma State. Yeah. I mean, so you're talking about huge programs, but... He went to URI, and it speaks to the, the – it's it's a credit to the coaches that recruit him. He went to URI because Dan Hurley recruited him, brought him in, and he wanted to play for Dan. And Dan had established a culture, and they bought into what the culture has been at URI. And right. so that's what Jared Grosso and his staff are doing now with the players that they're bringing in. And they're going to continue to try to do that over the next few years, you know, or however long they're running this program. And so to be able to do to have a kid that that is that says something like that, um, I just I, you're right. It speaks to his confidence and it speaks to the level of talent that the Bulldogs have collected, put together, and are now putting on the court this year. You know, not just in our professional lives, but in our personal lives. I think we both have a, a bit of a window into this. Uh, for those who don't know, Nick played Division Three baseball in college at Emerson. Uh, my brother played Division Three baseball in college at Eastern Connecticut. Um, the way you win consistently in Division Three is you get guys who aren't supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. You get a Division I talent who might have had an injury in high school or might have had some academic issues uh, or might have been at a D1 program and it didn't work out and he wanted to play more, he wanted more innings. That's how you win. I, I think about you know, my brother was fortunate enough to be on a national championship team at Eastern Connecticut. Their pitching staff had a guy who ended up in double-A with the Mets and a guy who ended up a sixth-round pick and a bonus baby by the Royals. They should not be pitching in Willimantic, Connecticut. You know, they should have been at UConn or maybe at a lower level ACC school. Um, I'm sure you saw that in, in your travels. You yeah. face guys who you're just like, man, why is this guy at Trinity or at Tufts or at Suffolk? Like, he's way too good to be there. He should be at Boston College or at St. John's or something like that. And college sports have those stratas as you continue to go up, whether it's Division Three, Division Two, II, Division One. You're at Bryant at this point. In order to win the NEC, you need to have players who shouldn't be in the NEC. In order to win the Atlantic 10, you should have players who shouldn't be in the Atlantic 10. The only schools that, that really can, can say that they are recruiting players to their quote-unquote level 
is if Kentucky or Duke or Kansas get a five-star kid who's a top-ten recruit. Yep. They get those guys because they're Kentucky, Kansas, or Duke. That doesn't mean that they can't lose to your top 75 guy or your top 150 guy or your non-ranked guy who might have just developed and grown three inches and, and suddenly is, is a much better player who ends up in the NBA. I mean, just look at a guy like Steph Curry. You know, if, if you're going to go back and, and, you know, go back 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is, Steph Curry would not have played at Davidson. But Steph Curry wasn't that guy when Davidson recruited him. He wasn't the two-time MVP and whatever else. So I, I think it was, it was really interesting what Kiss said. When you look at it in that context, when you're a little bit more informed and you're willing to be a little less reactionary about what he said and, and maybe consider why he was saying it and the validity to it. Now you got me thinking about guys that I faced uh, when I was playing D3 baseball. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was. I remember there was a, a young man who was playing, I believe it was at Riviera University up in New Hampshire. Sure, yeah. And he was playing in our conference, and we had heard about the kid. And why did we hear about the kid? Because he was throwing 90-plus miles an hour, right. and there were scouts showing up at his games. That's right. Um, you know, I think of some of my friends that I played high school baseball with. I had a couple kids that, that went to Franklin Pierce, you know, Division II school up in, up in New Hampshire. Very good program. Great program. Very good program. And these guys, you know, friends of mine, Joey and Matt, both could have played Division One somewhere. Yeah. They played at Franklin Pierce. They played at a high level. They played in World Series in Division Two. You know, my best friend Jordan played at Division Three Wheaton College up in Norton, Mass. Just Another up the very road. good program, yeah. He played in the World Series. Division Three played against the uh, Marietta Express from Georgia. And, um, yeah, I, I think of those guys and I say – they could have played, you know, Division One. They had those that sort of talent, but Absolutely. they got the opportunity that they got. And the, the the important thing for those athletes is having the opportunity. And if you find a place where you get the opportunity and you can succeed, I think that trumps a lot of other things. And the other thing I think about, and I know we haven't talked much about, uh, you know, our Brown University Bears here in the Ivy League, but yeah. look at this year and all of the Ivy League transfers that are going to other places and playing well and becoming integral parts of programs. You know, I think of, we keep talking about how Bryce Aiken can can really contribute at Seton Hall. You know, he's had off and on injury, whatnot, and that's sort of been his story at, at Harvard. But when he's on the court, Seton Hall of the Big East is relying on this guy that was a guard at Harvard. Or I think of, is it Smith that's at Michigan? Mike, Mike Smith? Smith, yes. Columbia kid, correct? Yes, yeah, correct. very good player for them. And now he's at Michigan playing for Jawan Howard. You know, so and Michigan folks is really good. Yeah. What they did at Wisconsin the other night was illegal in about twenty states. <laughs> I mean, really, they they just pounded Wisconsin, who is a good team. Yeah. So you think of these guys, and they were at these Ivy League, you know, Ivy League programs, and now they're they're integral parts of these bigger places. And so I think that speaks to the point of, you know, now these guys have gotten their opportunities in bigger places, and they're shining. But before they were in programs because these coaches and these staffs said. We're going to give you the opportunity here. We're building a program here, and you're going to – we're going to put you here. This is what you're going to do, and you're going to help us win and, and, and succeed. And that's what they're doing, I think, at Bryant right now. And really they're feeling the, you know, the fruits of their, their labor in terms of the recruiting this season so far, evidenced by the fact they're top five in the nation in the, points per game. The second part of that, obviously, is player retention. And, and the fact that Jared Grasso was able to keep Michael Green here, keep Charles Pride here, yep. um, you know, that's that's a huge secondary piece. Uh, Peter Kiss couldn't say enough nice things about Grasso, how inspirational he is, uh, how much he motivates them. We know Jared over his two and a half years here. You know he's a grinder. You know he's going to put the work in. Uh, you know when he gets his players to do the same thing, and when his players are taking the lead on that, that's when you have a chance to do special things. When it's not a coach-driven culture, but it's a player-driven culture. Uh, I think we're seeing that develop at Bryant now. You can't tell me for five seconds that Michael Green couldn't have gone home to the Bronx this offseason and played major minutes at Fordham this year if oh, he yeah. wanted to. You, you can't tell me he couldn't have done that. No way. He stayed for the coach. Yep. He didn't stay to live in Smithfield, with all due respect. I hope he gets a lifetime Jay's Deli card for, for what he's doing yeah, that area for the Bulldogs. Is, that area is not too bad. I might, might no, may or may I, not live up in that area. No, I believe me, I, I like it. <laughs> I do. I like it. I know. But if I'm a college kid, I don't know if I want to be on a campus in Smithfield. Now, that comes from me who went to school in Boston, so I can't necessarily. True. 
say that. True. Uh, Jay's Deli is a big draw, though. A big draw. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. If you gave it to me for life, I'd be fatter than I am now. <laughs> um, so anyway, Brian going for seven straight uh, Thursday night on ESPN Plus for folks who have it. Uh, they'll play again against the Red Flash on Friday uh, in the afternoon at 4 o'clock if you want to get your weekend started off a little early. Uh, you could check in on that one. Uh, but the Bulldogs are, are definitely, as you said, uh, probably the most fun team in the area right now. If, if you had a 6- or 7-year-old kid and, and you wanted to see them, uh, you wanted them to watch basketball and, and actually find it you know, enjoyable, pleasurable, see teams go up and down and shoot threes and score a lot, that's probably the team that you would show them. Oh, yeah. Um, at, at this point. Uh, you know, where should we go next? Because the <laughs> darkness part of the podcast is about to creep in. I think you've waited long enough, Bill. I think you've waited long enough. Go ahead. The floor is yours. Let's, let's talk about... Uh, the roadie rams because obviously they're fresh in our minds after last night too yeah the roadie rams uh you know they they are a a confounding bunch uh and i think their last two games illustrate that perfectly uh they go on the road to vcu they're tied at halftime and they sprint away from the richmond version of the rams in the second half 83 68 win for some reason coity they just have a mastery over vcu they've won nine out of the last 10 against them um you know they've really recruited a roster and 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 instilled a, a way of playing to beat vcu specifically that was the conference bully when dan hurley got hired uh that was the standard that you were going to have to reach it was vcu and st louis two really physical teams athletic teams defensive minded uh and uri has been very successful against them in recent years they've dumped them out of the last three a10 tournaments that have been played um you would not have found yourself thinking that was possible in 2014-15, 2015-16. VCU just seems so strong so far ahead of everybody else. Rhode Island comes back on Wednesday night. They play at UMass, a, a program that lost to Bryant at home earlier this year. They're 1-3 against teams not named LaSalle, who lost by 35 to George Mason on Wednesday. And URI falls 80-78 in overtime against the Minutemen, uh, a game that they needed a late Allen Beatran three-pointer just to force the extra session. URI commits 20 turnovers in the game. Um, you know They throw away one of their last possessions. Jeremy Shepard turns the ball over in the paint. Um, Antoine Walker misses a layup that, that would have forced a second overtime. Uh, UMass wins despite going 6-for-30 from three. Uh, and despite a relatively pedestrian night from Trey Mitchell, he only had 16. Uh, you know, last year he really hurt URI. I think he had 62 points combined in the two games. Um, Coity, I think I think that's exactly who URI is. Watching those two games, uh, they are confounding. They are inconsistent. Um, they don't always play to their talent level. It, it's just. I think the most frustrating thing for me watching them is you see the potential and you see the individual ability and it comes out in flashes. Um, you know, them beating Seton Hall at home and the way they performed down the stretch in that game was very impressive. Uh, the way they played in the second half against VCU was very impressive. They were just able to impose their will on those two opponents. And, and those two teams are not bums by any stretch. No way. But for them to come out last night and, and do what they did against UMass, um, you know, that's the sort of performance that we saw against Boston College when they were poor, um, against Davidson at home in the second half, they were poor, uh, even against St. Joe's to win that game in overtime against a team that's only beaten Albany this year. It shouldn't be that hard of a slog against a team like that. So I'm. I guess my frustrations with URI are the fact that they are just so maddeningly inconsistent that you have no idea what's going to happen on a night-to-night basis and that you're not necessarily certain where this is going. I think it's got to drive the coaching staff crazy, too. Oh, it has to. If I feel this way, I can only imagine how they feel. It has to drive them nuts because, like you said, you see the flashes of how good they can be. Um, But then you also see turnovers are... You know, a lot of them, you're, you're looking at it and you're saying it's just, it's it's careless. It's careless turnovers that lead to points the other way. And UMass was getting on on the fast break and taking full advantage of them. And 
that that drives you nuts because when you lose a game by two points and you think back to one or two plays, a lazy pass here, you know, a, a pass down to the post that gets knocked away, coming back in transition, coming too fast, working too fast, it drives you insane because if you cut those if you cut those in half, Bill, right, last night, if you just even if you cut them down by five, even if it's fifteen turnovers, right, you know, and I'm over analyzing numbers, but the point is, those one or two plays make the difference and all the difference in the world. And you know, credit to them for they can play with some of the best teams around. That's why they weren't afraid in their non-conference to go to Wisconsin and say, we're going to play Wisconsin, we're going to take on the challenge. That's right. Because they feel, David Cox and his staff, and the team feels that when they play to the best of their ability, they can challenge teams like that. And I think they're right. It, but when you are going out there and you're turning the ball over 20 times, and when you're last in the A-10 in terms of, I should say, most of in the A-10 in terms of total turnovers, yeah. so you're last there, yeah. it, it's going to spell disaster on some nights. And that's what's happening, especially recently. I mean, they're averaging 15.5 per game. That number has to come down. It has to come down. 98 in their last five. Oh. It's, un- it's it's unbelievable and and look sometimes turnovers can be because because you're being aggressive so sometimes you know numbers there's always another there's always a disclaimer to certain statistics and whatnot but it's the eye test and it's just looking at some sometimes they just they're going too fast and you know I, I think of I think of Alan Beatran being in the starting five and being out there he hit a, a stone cold three to tie that game last night you know the up fake he draw, draws off the defender gets himself a wide open look yeah. and he nailed that thing and credit to him but I think back to some of the plays that he made earlier in the game where they're in transition and it's you know guys that are coming the other way UMass Trey Mitchell Noah Fernandez guys flying around the floor that they're just knocking the ball the way going back the other way and scoring and those little plays right there can make all the difference in the world. So it's it sounds nitpicky, but it's that's why you lose by two points in overtime. Now, unless you're really, really, really good um, and really individually talented, uh, you know, to the extreme, you know, because they are individually talented. I, I don't mean to say they're not, but to the extreme, and, and you know, if you have three of the top ten players in the conference, you might be able to get away with stuff like that. Um, you know, but against UMass, you, you turn it over twenty three point eight percent. Of your possessions, uh, you're currently up to 21 percent of your possessions for the season. That's 244 in the nation. That would be the worst mark since 2006-07. 14 oh, years. Um, you look at their individual personnel, and it's it's guards, Coyte, who are doing this. Uh, Fats Russell takes reasonable care of the ball. He's at 15.3 percent. But you look at Jalen Carey and Jeremy Shepard and and then Antoine Walker. They're the three worst defenders. On their individual possessions on the floor, they all turn the ball over more than 26% of the time. Two of those guys are guards. Two of those guys have the ball in their hands a lot. Uh, Jeremy Shepard had five against UMass. You you know, you have a play that's that's essentially designed for him to have the ball in his hands uh, late in overtime, and he turns it over in the lane. Um, you know, this is a guy who, who commits turnovers on 29.4% of his possessions. And he's out there a lot. Um, so you are missing opportunities to score. You're missing opportunities to either add to a lead, come back in games, whatever it may be. Um, you know, and it, it's just something that they haven't addressed through 13 games. And, and in fact, you might say over the last five, it's getting worse. Um, you wonder just what sort of adjustments they're going to make. Um, you know, you see on offense at, at times they, they just don't appear to have any sort of continuity. Uh, I think that's because they're still searching for answers. They're still playing a lot of guys at that end of the floor. I don't necessarily know how comfortable those guys are playing with one another. Um, you know, there are stretches where, you know, they don't get quality looks or it looks like forced three pointers. Uh, you know, just there's not necessarily that sharpness that cohesion that you need to be a consistently good consistently winning team and i think their record reflects that so the question is how do you and you just hinted at it but how do you fix that how do you cut down on those turnovers and i think maybe the answer is shortening your rotation a little bit giving more guys more minutes and 
a couple of guys less minutes. You know, maybe it is that you're having a lot of guys step onto the floor, especially at the guard position. And maybe now it's time at this point, because that's all happening, to you know say, okay, we're going to ride with these three, these four guys, and see what happens. Maybe maybe that's the answer. I, I, I don't know. Would you would you agree with that? Because that's just, the only thing I can think of is just there's so many guys out there. My solution would be to bring Jeff Doughton back and yeah. get him an extra year. <laughs> right. I, I certainly think that would help. Yeah. Uh, you know because that was as steady a pair of hands as, as you could have asked for in this program. Uh, unless the NCAA wants to rewrite their considerably uh, you know over overbearing rule book. I don't think that's going to happen, um, you know. And and so I think you, I think you look at personnel on this team, and and I do think they are still searching for the right combinations. Uh, I also think that you know they're probably looking down the road this year, trying to make a run into the A10 tournament, uh, which will not be played in Brooklyn. That was uh, some breaking news that came in before the podcast. Uh, it's going to be played on a campus location or somewhere else to be determined. Um, that's the only real way that, that URI has to get into an NCAA tournament uh, for the third time in five years. And, and so I think anything you do over your remaining scheduled 12 games has to be tailored towards trying to make a run in Brooklyn. Um, you know, whether that involves a little bit more trial and error here or whether it involves you know, some tough decisions, that's why the coaching staff makes the big bucks, and, and we don't. Um, you know, one thing I would say is, is you have an interesting balancing act here in terms of your roster and in terms of your future rosters. And, and I look at you know, players like Jalen Carey and like Ishmael Leggett. I, I think it's, it's a good place to maybe speak to some of the realities of coaching that people don't see on the floor. Um, you know, someone like Jalen Carey, who's a transfer from Syracuse, who's a consensus top 60 recruit, whether or not he's played like that, you, you can discuss that on your own time. But he was viewed at one point as one of the top players in his class. You recruited him away from Syracuse when he decided to transfer because you believed in that talent and in that evaluation and how he would fit into your system. Right. You also recruited Ishmael Leggett because you thought he was going to be a foundational piece, a building block going forward. A guy who played at a very high level in high school, uh, you know, was a very capable player at St. John's College High. Uh, someone who has shown flashes as a freshman uh, of somebody who could be a future piece here. The realistic balancing act that a coach must perform at this point is playing both of them enough to the point where you can retain both of them and still manage to win games. And and this is the really difficult calculus of coaching. If you cut Jalen Carey from the rotation, if, if you listen to what a lot of the URI fan base wants, he's a turnover machine, he can't shoot threes, he's not showing us anything, you need to cut him from the rotation. You are essentially admitting that you have failed with a former top 60 recruit. And any elite targets that you would like to pursue on the transfer market going forward, which is going to be very important with the NCAA eventually passing the one-time transfer, that's going to really hinder you. If you're admitting to high school coaches, AAU coaches, guardians, parents, whatever, that your son might have been a highly rated recruit somewhere else, I'm going to recruit him here and not play him? That's going to be an interesting signal to put out. Wow. The second part of that equation is you recruit a freshman, you tell him, yes, you're going to be a big part of this thing going forward, and yes, we, we think that you can play here and you've shown it in flashes here, but we're not necessarily going to give you 20, 25 minutes like some freshman guards at other programs in the league are getting. Well, what sort of advice does he get? Transfer. Go somewhere else. This is instant gratification. You could go somewhere where you're going to play more or somewhere close at home where you're going to play more or you know, maybe you've shown enough where you can go to a quote-unquote better program. Now, in Leggett's case, I, I don't think that's true just yet. Um, but you're also trying to counterbalance that. And, and so I think that's maybe the sort of discussions that coaches have. And, and I'm not saying that you or I is. I, I haven't spoken to their staff about this. I, I don't know if those discussions are ongoing in their basketball offices. But if you're going to judge on the circumstantial evidence, player movement in the sport, 
the types of players who move in the sport, the way rosters are constructed now, that's the real calculus that coaching staffs have to do. And I think we're going to see and have seen some of that going on in the URI rotation at this point. Long story short, shortening the rotation is not as easy as it sounds. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's why I asked the question. And, yep, you just put it in, in terms of the the complex thinking that, that goes into those sorts of things. And that is the position where you, you logically you look at it and you say you, you'd have to shorten things because I think your, you know, your bigger spots, your forwards and whatnot – you don't have as much depth. You don't have as much, I think, to wrestle with. You know, when, when Makai Mitchell went down, I think that took away from that. Yeah. And that was one of the bright spots, and I want to make sure to note this, too, of the UMass game. I thought Mikhail Mitchell played really well, especially against a guy like Trey Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, he, he really he showed me something last night, and that gives you the confidence that if they go to him at that position and they need a little offense in the paint, that's a kid that that could do it for you, and that's that's really encouraging because, you know, when you lose a guy like Cyril Langevin, who was an all-time you know big man in your program, yeah. that's always that's been the question: is how are you going to make up for that sort of production? Yeah, and and now you're seeing that Mikhail Mitchell is capable of that—a career-high 23 points, the way he played. I want to see that more from him, and that and that was that was really encouraging. That was the one thing I took out of last night, and I said more of that. Now you make a good point. I, I think you know based on what we expected individually out of each player before the season, I think he's probably the most valuable guy they've had. I, I think he's probably met or exceeded those expectations the most. Um, you know, he's a top 65 shot blocker in the country. Uh, you mentioned his offensive game. He's 10 for 13 from the field against UMass in a really difficult matchup against Trey Mitchell. Um, you know, and also he, he is clearly uh, the five man on this team going forward. Yeah. I, I think he has established himself uh, as this team center, if he would like to be for the next three seasons. Um, you know, he's definitely looking like, and, and certainly last night, he did uh, look like a building block piece for this group. And you asked David Cox, too, about a guy that was playing some late game minutes who hit a couple of big shots, too. And that's DJ Johnson. And, you know, when you're thinking about, okay, what worked from this game, when you're thinking about what am I going to do with my rotation, who am I going to play in terms of combinations late in games, whatever. DJ Johnson, another positive. He he showed me something last night. He can he can hit big shots when it counts. You know, he can play well in the important minutes. So another guy that going forward they can absolutely put out there in certain situations. You know, and that that just you you watch DJ and you watch what he did and you say, Well, why didn't he play more minutes? Uh, you know, you watch <laughs> you watch Leggett sometimes and you say, Well, why doesn't he play more minutes? Um, you know, it, it seems like fans sort of get fixated on one player or two players who they like, and they say, why doesn't this guy play more? And I think when you're a really good team, it is obvious the players who should be the guy, quote-unquote. Um, you know, it, it is obvious the players who should be out there in crunch time. Uh, the only time that you hear arguments for the backup quarterback is when the starter is ineffective. Um, <laughs> and, and I think you're seeing a lot of that among the URI fan base right now. They want to see certain guys play because they don't see other guys as effective. Listen, I've done enough. Jarrett Stidham should start week 16, week <laughs> That's 17 right. That's right. to know that discussion. So let's not go there. I, I won't give you uh, weekend trauma flashbacks here. <laughs> you could save that for Scott Cordishi. Uh, uh, 7 a.m. on Saturdays? Uh, ne- next two weeks, actually, we're 11. We got pushed back because of a... Uh WEI is doing a, uh, I think, a betting show for the NFL and whatnot. So, yeah, but usually seven. There's sure. there's a show plug for yeah, you, Cody. Don't, don't say I never give you anything on <laughs> this podcast. Connecting them all. Connecting them all. Um, you know, Saturday w- was initially set up to be the next game for the Providence Friars. Uh, that will not be the case. Uh, Georgetown has gone into a COVID-19 pause um, and will not be coming to Providence. Um, and what, where that leaves the Friars is potentially playing four straight games on the road, uh, and they're on a three-game losing streak at this point. And, and Coity, I think this this is really, you know, we looked at it coming into January. It was going to be the stretch in the season where we were going to decide whether or not they were going to be a contender in the Big East or not. Um, you know, right now, they're in a really dangerous spot in their schedule. I, I think this could get away from them 
quickly uh, going to Creighton and going to Villanova, the two teams who were picked ahead of them in the preseason. Uh, they're coming off a couple gut-wrenching losses against Creighton and against Xavier, uh, and then the other night against Marquette, uh, you know, just faltered a little bit down the stretch, losing 79-69. Uh, they are banged up. They have guys who are battling some injuries, uh, a couple major ones, a couple minor ones. Um, you know, Cody, I, I just I look at this team and I think to myself, they're two very difficult assignments against Creighton and Villanova, but it's gut check time for these guys right now. You have to step forward now. After, after what happened at home against Creighton and on the road against Xavier, this is the time. You have to step forward now. There's... They have figured out in the hardest of ways the margin for error and just how razor thin it is in the Big East. Yeah. And losing those two games, you're talking about somebody put it, um, I think it was a fan on one of the message boards, and it was uh, Mike Hopkins on, on Twitter who does a great job following the Friars. Sure, yeah. He, he put it up, he screenshot it, and he said, This is a perfect way to think about it and just how, how excruci- excruciating it is to think about where they could be. Yeah. After they lose that Xavier game, they are literally, if you combine the seconds left on the clock, literally one second away from winning those two games, being 5-1 and one in the Big East, right. and sitting in first place. That's right. Going into that Marquette game. Yeah. Now, instead, you've dropped three straight. You're 3-4. and four. You're not going to have what could be considered a soft landing at home against Georgetown. Right. Now you have to go to Creighton. You have to go to Nova. Nova's been on pause, so they are obviously hungry to get back out there and play. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right. It's it's gut check time, and and I hope that they've learned these lessons along the way in terms of how to close out these games and, and what they need to do because, I mean, I, I think they did from the Creighton game because the Xavier game, that last possession, I don't know how much better they could have played defensively. They played well in the paint. They kicked it out to the corner. They went after that shooter. And a freshman floated back up top and took the game-winning three. Right. Xavier and Travis Steele didn't drop a play for the freshman to win the game. No. No way. No. So credit to Xavier. They got the open look, and they won the game. But at the same time, somehow you have to come away with the stop. You have to... You have to make sure that that doesn't, that sort of improvisation doesn't happen. I mean, it's, but I, that's the funny thing is I don't know how much better they could have played defensively there, but it's you know losing leads and and you know you're up seven with one thirteen to go and then yeah the lead disappears. Um, you know I know Marquette is the freshest on our minds, but I think back to that and I say. That's that's a series of plays where you know you could have won the game and they put those plays together Xavier did and and beat you and now you're in the spot that you are and you know the other night against Marquette yeah it's it's another tough loss but it's a team that you know you should have a chance to beat on the road and and you know did they play up to their capability for those 40 minutes i think at times maybe but at times they probably didn't and that's what uh, that's what's difficult to swallow for the coaching staff. Yeah, it's it, it, the Creighton game. You, you might have been caught a little bit unaware. You, you lost track of Christian Bishop. He was the trailer. He was the inbounder. You, you might have just forgotten about him because he was so out of the play for so long, and all of a sudden he's dunking and, and winning the game. Uh, the Xavier game, I agree with you. Uh, and Ed Cooley said it after the game. They guarded Xavier's first three offensive actions uh, in that possession. Uh, and Colby Jones all of a sudden drifts out to the three-point line. Paul Scruggs kicks it out, and there's your three-pointer to win uh, with, with no time left. Uh, but you mentioned it. You know, you're up by seven with 113 to go. Noah Horkler makes a three. Your head's 73-66 and, and sitting pretty in my mind. Uh, you know, All you have to do is not turn the ball over and make some free throws. What did Providence do? They turned it over twice. Uh, you know, it, they wanted to call, obviously, on, on Alan Breed. They thought he was fouled out by midcourt. Um, you know, we, we could flip a coin on that one. Uh, but the next possession, you got it poked out of bounds twice, and Jimmy Nichols steps on the baseline trying to go to the rim. Uh, and, and that was one, I think, that's really going to bother Ed Cooley because, as he said after the game, he thinks he should have taken another timeout 
to draw up another inbounds play. It was his last one. Uh, I know a lot of coaches want to keep it uh, because if they do take a timeout and then can't inbound the ball and have no timeouts left, you're, you're in a, an even worse position. Um, so I understand the, the thinking behind that. Uh, but it was a really awkward spot right in front of the bench. Didn't really leave you a lot of great places to pass it into. You hit Nichols in the corner and sort of trapped yourself. Uh, you know, And Xavier's able to make a play to win. Against Marquette, there, there were a couple other little details um, down the stretch that, that cost you in a game like this. Uh, you didn't get two offensive rebounds off missed free throws Bad. within the last minute and a half. and, and the, uh, Sorry, defensive rebounds off missed free throws in the last minute and a half. And, and those are just those are little mistakes that, that you just can't make. And, and as you mentioned, Coity, the, the margin of these games, uh, Seton Hall by three in overtime, Butler by six on the road, DePaul by five in double overtime at home. Two against Creighton, one against Xavier, and then ten against Marquette. But you would argue that the final doesn't necessarily reflect how close the game was for most of it. Um, you know, so the margin for error in these Big East games is, is minimal. Uh, and and when you see Providence making little mistakes like that, um, you know, you understand why they're three and four and not maybe five and two or six and one. And the margin for her is just, it's that thin. And it's funny, I'm sitting here kind of looking through the box score again and just trying to pinpoint where it was. You know, the play that stood out to me, and I think a lot of people sort of turned away when it happened, is about six and a half minutes left in the game. It's a three-point game at Marquette. And there's, I'm going to say, two or three Friars standing in the paint or standing near the basket. And DJ Carton misses a three. And Justin Lewis comes flying through the paint for a put-back dunk. Right. That's a play that, if I'm Ed Cooley, I mark it on the tape. I'm pointing it in front of my players, and I'm saying, this can not happen. We just gave away two points. You can't. But you look at the replay, Bill. There's two or three guys standing around. And that's why, after the game the other night... I. That was as heated as I've seen Ed Cooley in a while. That was one of those nights where Ed Cooley does not like when his team is it, it loses in the toughness department, is out, out. I don't want to say outwilled, but just and not out physical, but just you know when when those sorts of plays happen, it speaks to you know the 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 grind that this team is going through and, and they want to they want to be known as grinders. They want to be known as guys that get offensive rebounds. They want to get second chances. That's who Providence has been. They've been tough. And when you look at a play like that, that's Ed Cooley used a word that that players don't like to hear, that teams well, he, don't like he to sure hear. Sure did. S A W F T He sure did. In some places, but S O F T in, in some other places. Um he used the word soft, and and that's why you, you saw how heated he was. When you think of your team that way, hopefully that's a message sent to his players because I think that's exactly what he was doing. Yeah, and I I, I hope that they they get that message because you don't want to be known as as a team like that. When you hear that word in in basketball, in hockey, it doesn't matter the sport. You don't want to be that kind of team. I've never coached a team that wasn't tough emotionally, mentally, and more importantly, physically. This team has to get to that point. If we don't get to that point, we're going to have a tough time surviving in the Big East. Mentally tough. That's what I was sort of hinting at was just... I mean, that just says it all. Yeah, it does. It does, and and you hate to see it. And, you know, you can point to plays here and there. Uh, I know I've heard fans talk about, look... There's been a couple of horrendous calls in these games, late in games. The goaltending on David Duke was horrendous, atrocious. It was. I mean that that is. It was. That's one of those plays where you look at it, Bill, and you say, "Why was replay invented if you're if you're not going to use it?" Right. <laughs> right. And I don't I don't know all the rules. I don't know what t- how much time was left on the clock. Who calls for the review? Whatever. Yeah. Throw the flag, coach. Throw holy, a towel. Do holy something. Holy cow! Right. That's why replay was invented. It was poor. I mean that's but it was. You can talk about that all you want. That has no 
effect to me on just the the piling up of plays that lead to a 10-point loss at Marquette. You, you can say, you can't necessarily say that the game would have played out the same. It wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could also point to that and say it was a seven-point game at that time. Sure. He makes a layup. It's five. Sure. Uh, but it's not the difference between you winning and you losing. In a stack of papers, it's it's one form you have to fill out. That's right. That's that's the way I think that's, about it. That's so exactly what it is. It's it's tough um, that they haven't had Jared Bynum the last couple of games. Um, obviously, that's that that does help you offensively. It helps you, you know, cut down on some of you know a few turnovers here and there. I mean, the kid's got the best assist turnover ratio in the conference. Um, he leads the team in assists. I think, I think without Jared, I think they're more equipped this year. It, maybe as opposed to years past where they didn't have a pure point guard. Like last year we looked at it and we said, boy, they have to grind it out sometimes in these games because they don't have a quote-unquote pure, you know, pass-first, setting other guys up sort of point guard. They couldn't snap Luan Pipkins into that role no. immediately. It took some time. Yes, it did. It did. But even then, he was more – he cheated more toward being a, a scorer, you know. Um and that's no knock on the one. That's just you know his style of play that's and the right. way he had played a little bit at UMass too. Um, the way he was allowed to play. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, but with Jared, you know he can set other guys up. It allows David to play off the ball. But they're more equipped this year because I think David can handle those responsibilities better than he has. In, in years past, yes, and that's evidenced by the fact that some of the assist numbers haven't gone haven't gone down much the last couple of games for the Friars. If you look at some of the box scores, um, you know, but at the same time, David is still getting his. He's still scoring at the high clip that he is, and you know, the reason you feel good about the Friars, you know, that they may be able to get out of this rut and and show up in gut check time against Creighton and Villanova. Is that kid right there and yeah. Nate Watson? They are top heavy. They have two of the best scorers in the conference, two of the best players in the conference. So, yeah. if you're going into gut check time with those two guys, you feel okay. Yeah, I thought uh, Nate Watson showed uh, a significant amount of courage the other night. Uh, only had four points in the first half. He's playing on a sprained left ankle, and he comes out in the second half and has 14 yeah. uh, and, and finishes with a team high 18. Uh, I thought he showed a lot of toughness in that game. Um, I think what you're missing with Bynum, who has a groin screen, who, who's day-to-day, I think when Bynum is on the floor, it allows David Duke to be more efficient. Sure. Uh, the other night against Marquette, he had nine assists and one turnover in 40 minutes. Really good. Uh, excellent performance as a lead guard. But he was 5 for 18 from the field. Yeah. Uh, and you look back to the Creighton game where Bynum was out for the last 25 minutes. He suffered his injury in the first half. David was 5 for 19 from the field. Um, you know, And really struggling from two-point range. Uh, and I think that could be a product of he has to handle the ball. All of the attention is on him. Everyone is watching the ball. Everyone is overplaying him when he tries to take it off the dribble and go to the lane. He can't necessarily get into some spots, get ahead of steam, maybe come off a screen uh, on the weak side or in a secondary action. And I think just having the ball in Jared Bynum's hands frees David Duke up to be more efficient as a scorer. Um, You know, his turnovers, he had five turnovers against Xavier. That's high for him. Otherwise, he's kept them relatively in line. Um, Speaks you know, to how good he's been. Though. He's he's been superb. Yeah. I, I I think I I would say enjoy him while you have him, <laughs> PC fans. Really, because yeah. this could be these could be the last games you see him play here. Um, you know, depending on what sort of feedback he gets from NBA teams and from NBA scouts, uh, you know he looks every bit an NBA player. Uh, if not this off season, next off season, um, you know I would not take for granted. That he comes back if if he gets some feedback that he's going to be selected in the lottery or something like that. Um, you know he's playing at that level at times. Uh, has a pro body, has a pro skill set. We've talked about how much improved he is from three point range. That's going to make a huge difference at the next level. That's what he did not have as a freshman. Yeah. Um, you know, but I just think that Bynum's presence allows him 
to play a little bit more freely and score it a little bit more easily. Sure. I, I think and that that's that's why you have Jared in your starting five. That's why he's an important player to what you want to do going forward to play at your highest level. Um, but again, I think without him on the floor, you know, they've had a chance to win these two games. And again, the gap from, you know, not having him on the floor to having him on the floor is a little bit less than maybe you would expect in years past with somebody like that because of just how good that that David's been. And when I think about David too, you know, the trajectory, it's it's hard not for me to sit here, you know, covering the program the last seven years and, you know, to look at his trajectory and think, okay, where is it in line with Chris Dunn? Right. And it was his junior year, comes back, back from that shoulder injury. He's finally healthy. Yep. And, he's, and then he quickly started to ascend. And it felt like we were talking, we were having the same sorts of conversations. Like, I wonder if this is going to be his last year. What kind of feedback is he going to get? No, Chris didn't have the benefit of being able to declare, go to a combine, work out, and then make your final decision. That's right. David will have that kind of, you know, ability. And he might be able to declare, go work out, get his get scouts and, and people around the NBA, their opinions even higher of him. He may be able to work himself into being a top whatever pick in, in the draft. Um, so I, I would agree, you know, enjoy him while he lasts because his growth is accelerating. Um, and would he be back for his senior year, his last year? I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but, you know, the point is, you know, this is this is a, a fabulous player, uh, a great kid who, you know, you, you hope the best down the stretch for him because you just don't know how many more games you know, he's going to be, you know, part of this program because he's he's accelerating so fast. From a selfish perspective, I want him here for two and a half more well, years. Me too. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> not, not just the end of this year, not next year. I want him to come back and take the fifth year, too. Of course. I mean, why not? Of course. I would, <laughs> I would Seriously, I'd love, love to see it, but... Um, at the same time, you know, this is a young man we've watched since he was blossoming at classical high school down the road. And, yeah. and that's uh, that's the crazy part of it is is we've seen it from the sort of the ground floor. And, and uh, you know, Bill and I were just talking about some some high school hoops from a few years back because, um, you know, Saturday, George Mason's coming in to play URI and yeah. they'll be playing against Tyler Kolick, who's been an A-10 Rookie of the Week so far, yeah. you know, this season. Um, you know, has performed very well for the Patriots. And so, um, you know, that's that's going to be a player to, to watch here going forward. But he played in a state semifinal against Bishop Hendrickin and those those mighty players and that mighty team and Jamal Gomes, that fabulous coach. And uh, David Duke did the same thing in high school. Right. And that was sort of his coming out party. You know, at Brown University, it was the Division One championship game, and he comes out and he beats Hendrickson. And I remember that was that first memory of, ooh, what is this kid? Who who is he? Where where can he go? Yeah. And here we are now. He's blossoming for the Friars, hometown kid. Um, it's it's really it's great to see. It really is. I, I sound like I'm telling, you know, stories sitting in my you know rocking chair after a long career or whatever. But you know, I mean, hey. You add up the years here, Bill, and that's it's fun to see when a guy, you know, goes from where he was to where he is now. It's always it always makes a great story. I, I think the luxury of, of you know sort of being on the outside like we are is we get to appreciate moments for other people. Sure. Um, and they don't necessarily get that chance because they're working toward the next one. Um, you know, and, and for him, I'm sure that's, you know, trying to win a Big East championship, trying to win a national championship, uh, you know, trying to be selected as high as he can in the NBA draft and, and continue on his uh, trajectory, which which is as a future pro. Um, if he is content to sit there and say, wow, look at all I've accomplished, he won't get to that <laughs> point. Uh, you know, that's up for us to do. That's sure. up for us to contextualize um you know and Cody, you know about this a little bit being in a an award winner yourself uh, <laughs> i would like to congratulate you and, and our friend yanni caracas on sharing uh the state sportscaster of the year award uh that's given by the national sports media association uh Coit would be too humble to tell you this but this is his third time uh winning the award uh in in really what is 
hasn't been the longest career. It's not like you've been at it for 30 years and won it three times. You know, uh, I was just saying I was telling rocking chair stories, but you're right. No, it's a- <laughs> uh, you know, very impressive, my friend. Well done uh, for folks who, who don't know Coit personally. Uh, the media contingent behind the scenes refers to him as the grinder. Uh, you know, and he's one of those people who you see on the air on ABC six and he does his three and a half minute segment and he reads over the highlights. What you don't know is that he shot a lot of that video himself. He edited a lot of that video himself. He wrote the script himself. Uh, he is, um, truly an all around professional, uh, you know, someone who we appreciate in this market. And I certainly appreciate having as one of my co-conspirators here. Well, Bill, um, I'm blushing. Thank you for all the very kind words. He is turning red, folks, yeah. for, for folks who can't see it and aren't in the studio. He is turning a light shade of pink. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I, I look at a, an honor like this, and um, I never take it uh, for granted getting getting the call from, you know, as you've mentioned, it's, you know, I've been lucky enough to get it three times from, from uh, Dave Gorin, who a uh, guy from the Taunton area and used to work in this market as well, a, a great guy who does a lot of great things with the National Sports Media Association. So it's, uh, especially in a year like this, it's it's a pick-me-up um, yeah. to get a phone call like that. Um, and I, I was glad to know that Yanni, I was sh- sharing the honor with him um, because I think he... You know, like myself, had to adjust to the challenges of sports media in 2020. And in in mid-August, or mid-August, wow, mid-March, uh, when everything shut down, all the leagues shut down, I remember looking at Ian Steele, my, my, uh, you know, my co-worker, my tag team partner at Channel 6, and I said, what are we going to do? Right. There's no games. That's right. There's no sports. What do we do? And we took that challenge on, and we were able to keep it going. Um, and Yanni had to do the same thing, and he got creative, had to work from home, creative stories, you know, interviews, things like that. And so, uh, you know, I'm honored to share it with him. Um, I, I thank ABC6 for con- allowing me to continue to work and work in sports and do that part of the job yeah. throughout it all. Um, and I joked on Twitter, but I, I want to take the trophy when I get it. Sorry, Dave Gorn, and break it in half, <laughs> and and hand the other half to uh, to Ian, Ian Steele, who just um, worked his tail off. He was our station MVP this year. He at one point was filling in on the morning show, and then came oh, in right. and he started that. doing some sports stuff in the afternoon. Yeah. So he was working a, a, just a crazy schedule. Um, and he really keeps our department going and makes it so that when I don't have to think about work, I, I don't have to think about work. And that's that's always a wonderful feeling. So right. I, th- I thank them. Uh, and I want to say congratulations to Bill across the table from me for being named the Sports Writer of the Year for the third time in the state of Rhode Island. And I just know how... Bill has had to adjust to the challenges and adjust to staffing changes and adjust to all the things that have come along with the pandemic, not only on you know, in his side of media, um, but covering the teams that you cover and all of the things that you have to do. I mean, Bill, when he started at the Journal, the workload that he had then compared to the workload that you have now is, I mean, it has gone way up, but you always just handle it with... You know, with such, there's never a complaint. It's just, all right, this is what I have to do. Um, and your work is always as, as stellar as, as the last piece. And um, to be able to cover the Red Sox this year, too, throughout it all, and cover a full MLB season on top of college basketball, on top of anything that's happening around the area, um, just super impressive, my friend. So congratulations. No, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, I share it, obviously, with my coworkers. Bill Corey is, is an incredibly supportive and, and understanding boss. Um, you know, Eric Rubin and Mark Daniels, who are still here, uh, you know, whenever I, I have a day that I feel like I don't want to do it or can't do it, they're, they're happy to, to pick up for me. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm in the debt of Kevin McNamara, who... You know, has moved on to his own website, KevinMaxSports.com. Uh, I wish he was still here, uh, and and still, you know, my tag team partner on college basketball here. Uh, you know, because he is one of the experts in that area in this region. Um, you know, for me personally, Cody, I, I think 
you know, I owe a lot of this to, to my family and to my friends because they hear all the stuff behind the scenes that doesn't come out in my work, you know, whether it's my frustrations or the difficulties I have during the day, um, you know, the, the really down periods where, where I don't feel very good uh, either about myself or about the industry or, or about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Um, you know, it's them who, who has to listen to those complaints, um, you know, allowing me to vent my feelings in that way. And, and so I owe them everything, um, you know, because they are everything. Uh, I would second that. Um, and especially when we haven't had as many chances to see them in person this year, um, that, that makes it, uh, that makes it that much harder sometimes. And so, yeah, I, I would second that. And I've, I've, I know I've, had a lot of friends this year that have sort of kept me going in the times where you think man how the heck are we going to get through this and they help you forget about it for a few minutes and you know just remember the the good things and the blessings you have in life yeah and and also i mean it's it's important to note that what we do despite the difficulties despite the hard times it is fun it is meant to be fun uh it's not quote unquote real work um (laughs) you know folks in 2020 who were far more consequential than we were uh your sister my brother both frontline workers uh you know both people who have been exposed to covid who have treated sick people who have helped sick people um you know all the folks who, who have worked in our medical facilities um you know law enforcement fire departments who whoever it may be um you know just selflessly sacrificing uh you know for us so that we could be you know as you know disrupted as little as possible um you know even in terrible times like this uh you know so we thank them we we understand uh that what we get to do here is is fun we get to talk about uh, nonsense for you know over an hour at this point uh, <laughs> and and we hope that uh, we've given everyone a, a diversion uh that's our goal you know every episode here on the podcast and uh you know we hope going forward that we get to enjoy the games and and you all get to enjoy the games Bill, a pleasure as always, my friend. Thank you, Coity. Uh, can't wait until next time. And uh, I will see you in person on Saturday at the Ryan Center. Excellent. That will be a wonderful uh, first on the season. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, everyone.